0: Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior.
1: First Samuel
0: 15 and um, verse
1: 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie. Nor have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret, and then he said, "I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord, and then Samuel said, "Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Agag, king came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past." And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul up to his house in Gabeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We remember Today, once again, on this Lord's Day, that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just ask his help now as we look at his word once again. Father, we come before you and Lord, we thank you for who you are, where we praise you. We are the clay and you are the potter, Lord, and you are the the eternal one, and we are brought into existence by the word of your power and sustained by your word, Lord, by the the word of Christ, who also upholds the universe, we're told. And so I pray that as we consider who you are and as you have revealed yourself to us in your scriptures, God, that you would would give us humility, that there would be a sense of awe and admiration, Lord, uh, an understanding that you are alone, our God, you are in a category, Lord, all on your own. And so I pray you keep us from ever trying to bring you down to be like us. But Lord, we also know that you have crafted us in your image. And Lord, that we are meant to, to shine forth something of who you are. And you've given us the capacity to know you by your spirit, to, to grow in the knowledge of you. We know that Christ even defined eternal life as it is to, to know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to expound your word in a way that is clear and beneficial and that you would give receptive hearts and ears, Lord, from the young to the old that there would just be, uh, Lord, a sense in in each of us that uh, when we look into your word that we are beholding you, the eternal one. And we pray this uh, even as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper and remembering the body broken and the blood poured out that we would continually keep our eyes upon christ our king and we ask this all in jesus name amen Maybe see be seated thank you so the title this morning is the unchanging god and uh i have a little bit of a adult dilemma as i um uh, david's going to be speaking in uh, several weeks i'll my family and I will be going to Saskatchewan for my grandmother's funeral on the week, weekend of the 19th. So I've given David something of a, a preaching schedule and now I need to keep myself to that as much as possible for David's sake and mine. So that means I can't uh, maybe uh, stretch this out as long as I would like over another week or so. So I, I know I'm often guilty of trying to cram too much in. So please bear with me this morning. I want to try and look at this whole question in this chapter especially of the unchanging nature of God despite the fact that we have this tension in this chapter that we find both in the text we just read and also at the beginning. We're told that God regretted having made Saul and yet Samuel clearly tells Saul God is not like man. He does not have regrets nor does he Lie, and so I want to try and look at this apparent contradiction here, and hopefully help you to to understand it in light of, of God's word, and uh, in, in light of who we are and who God is. I don't know. Many of you enjoy um, your animals. You enjoy your pets. Um, maybe, depending, you know, what relationship they are to you. I remember growing up on the farm. I really had very little affection for the cattle that always seem to demand so much time and attention, whereas uh, animals that maybe are more our pets, our dogs, our cats, we, we think more fondly of, perhaps. But uh, as you think about the, the animals that we have, the Lord has created these animals for purposes. Sometimes it's just uh, nice to have an animal around, or they, they serve a purpose of food, or laying eggs, or uh, doing work for us, maybe not as much today, but certainly in the past, and we know that even the animals have various personalities, various, various temperaments. You know, a, a dog, as you drive up into the yard, recognizes your vehicle and it, it, it's, it's happy, uh, you know, usually to see you. And uh, the Lord's given them this capacity to know something of us, to, to recognize us and distinguish us from, from a stranger who they may bark at. Or uh, if you're like, uh, you know, our, our dog, well, Nathan's dog likes to howl at everybody no matter how many times he's seen you, unless you're like immediate family <laughs> Uh, and you know then our, our ducks they seem to assume you 're probably going to kill them, and they, they, as soon as they see somebody they 're running off into the distance and, 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 and we see the lord 's made these animals with a, a limited a very limited capacity to to know us and to communicate at some level and yet there 's obviously this large distance between humanity and the animals, despite what modern uh, so called science may want to say that these are our ancestors we know the Bible. Distinguishes man as we are made in God's image. We're given the capacity to know God. And and as we think about the distance between us and God, I think looking at the animals in us, it gives something of a picture. I mean, how would a, a dog communicate to another dog something of their master? Their vocabulary is very limited, their understanding of who we are is very limited. It would have to be in very basic terms and in ways that are familiar to the animals. Of course, it's kind of a strange thought. We don't know exactly what they think of us. But surely the distance between the created animals and us as God's people is actually far less than the distance between us and God, who is the Eternal One. And uh, I think many times as the angels hear of us trying to explain who God is, trying to talk of God, they must think that oftentimes our explanations are, are quite silly and uh, very childish, very very uh, basic. And, and no doubt they are. But one of the incredible things as we think about the person of God is that he has in his kindness and mercy revealed him to, himself to us In a way that we can understand, in a way that's relatable. He has used human language and and imagery and, and pictures and even emotions to to communicate to us something of what he is like. And we know we can never fully exhaust all of who God is. He is He is so immense and so vast and and infinite in all of his ways that we, we merely get glimpses here and there of who this God is and we will continue to search this out throughout all of eternity. Who is this God? And I think this is very important as we look at these apparent contradictions in the Scriptures keeping in mind how it is God has revealed himself to us and the great distance between us as creatures and him is God. But we see in chapter 15, verse 10, and we didn't read this this morning, but when the word of God comes to Samuel after Saul's disobedience, he failed to, to carry out God's judgment upon the Amalekites uh, as the Lord has commanded. And so the word comes to, to uh, Samuel from the Lord, and we read in verse 10 that. The Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so we would hear something like that. And if that's speaking of a human, we would think, okay, they they, they did something they wish they had not done. They were caught off guard or... They fail to consider all of the possible outcomes. You know, if you, if you invest in a, a stock today that you hope is going to produce a profit for you and, and in a month's time it crashes and it becomes worthless, you would say, well, I regret having invested any money into that. Is that what this means? But then we have this verse that we we read together in verse 28 as Saul in desperation reaches out and grabs the the, the robe of of Samuel and is is pleading for Samuel to to, to bless him, to take back the the pronouncement of God tearing the kingdom from him Samuel makes this statement this clear statement about who the Lord is that the Lord is not like a man, He, he does not have regret he does not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But then, to add to this tension, we find in the end of the, the chapter, we read again, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So there's a few possibilities if you look at this. One possibility, someone could say, well, this is a blatant contradiction and God's word is not reliable. And that is that is an attack that will actually be used if you maybe you're talking to someone who is familiar with the Bible and they want to discredit it, they will point to things like this and they'll say, there you go. You can't trust this book. It contradicts itself and uh, it, is, it, is, it is irrelevant. Obviously, we would, we would uh, hold to the fact that the Word of God is inerrant. It is inspired by His Holy Spirit. And so, well, another possibility, um, well, somebody might conclude that well, God maybe is not all-knowing, that He does not know all things perfectly, and so, He's reacting to only what he can see in the moment. And, and the plan A of King Saul failed. And so now God is scrambling and has to come up with a plan B. Is that what we're to take away from this, uh, this tension? Or thirdly, it could be that, that Samuel means something different in the way he uses regret in reference to God versus the, the actions of God. And, and I think this gets to the, the heart of how we can be helped here. We have to distinguish between the actions of God and how he describes those playing out in space and time and the very nature and person of God. And we'll look a little bit more at that. My initial thought with this is, well, probably in the original Hebrew, the the word that Samuel uses is different, but it's just translated into English as regret. But actually, in all three cases, it is the same word that Samuel is using, which adds to the, the struggle So, in in, in an attempt to to sort through this, we may uh, even start with asking, well, are there other places in the Bible where this sort of tension is seen? Do we see this sort of language used of God in other places of the scriptures? And I'm sure for many of you, Genesis uh, 6-6 will come to mind. As the Lord looks upon the earth and, and wickedness has increased since the fall. And the Lord, we're told in Genesis 6.6, 6, regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. We see the same language of regret used. Or in uh, First Chronicles 21.15, after David had presumptuously counted all of his Soldiers And in uh, somewhat of an act of, I suppose, pride, the Lord judges him and sends an angel to, 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 to wage war against the people of, of God in Jerusalem. We read in First uh, Chronicles 21.15, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. Or through the prophet Jeremiah, we see this sort of language in Jeremiah 18, 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel. Can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, the clay, but like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. And God is using this language. If a nation uh, gives itself over to evil then I will not do the good that I was going to, and I will, I will come against that nation. Or if an evil nation repents and turns from its wickedness, then I will show good to it. And we see again this language of, of relenting or um, a sort of uh, regret, similar sort of language. Last one, Exodus 32, 14. God is about to destroy the people of Israel for their idolatry, and Moses intercedes on behalf, and we read the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So this is language that is, especially in the Old Testament, used describing God's actions towards both his people and also the nations of the world. So then we might ask, well, what about the verses that teach that God is unchanging? Uh, do we see a lot of, of those sort of verses as well in the Bible? Verses that would declare that God is an unchanging God. And there's a list of those as well. I'll just read some of these off for you. I may not have time to turn to all of them. But uh, a famous one, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Or Malachi 3:6, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Very fascinating verse. The Lord says: The reason that my people are not consumed is because I am an unchanging God. I do not change. Psalm 102.25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. The Lord is unchanging, and it goes on, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Another well-known verse declaring that God is unchanging is from James one sixteen. James Tells the the, the Christians, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So this is the tension that we we feel. We have on the one hand all of these scriptures declaring to us that God is unchanging, unchanging. Or the, uh, the technical word that uh, theologians may use is he is immutable. He is, he is unchanging. There is no variation within the person of God. And yet we also see this language used at times of God's dealings with man that he regrets or he relents or he seems to change his mind. Now, I want to take a quick uh, detour here because I think it's going to be helpful as we think about uh, who God is in his unchanging um, character, in in contrast to who we are, uh, quoting from our Confession of Faith, the 169 London Baptist Confession, it says, "'The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfect, pure spirit.' He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. And the confessions of faith are affirming these scriptures that we, we just read. God is unchanging. He is immutable. He is a perfectly pure spirit, even in his, his emotions, or we could say some would translate as passions. He is, he is not changing as we are. And this leads us to something very important that we, we need to understand. And as I was wrestling with this whole matter this week, uh, I came across a book by Sam Renaheim called uh, God with, Without Passions and was a tremendous help to me uh, in, in wrestling with some of this tension. So uh, I just want to give credit to there. For I'll try to let you know when I'm quoting Sam, but I uh, found, found it very helpful. And he, he brought uh, this issue up as, as it relates to us. And, uh, and then we'll look at how that helps us in understanding these passages so not only is God unchanging but he is not a God of parts like we are he is a pure spirit as he told Moses in Exodus 3:14. he said I am that I am and many uh, theologians describe this truth regarding God's nature that he is a God without passions he is a simple being in the sense that he's not made up as of various parts as we are. You see, as God's creatures, we are made of body and soul and mind. And we, we, we have these various parts that relate to one another. If I am anxious in my spirit, anxious in my heart and mind... It will actually have physical implications you may have increased blood pressure you may be sleepless and maybe even a loss of appetites you see we are complex beings in the sense that we're made up of these various parts and they relate to one another and we're constantly affected by our surroundings I may wake up grumpy, but then once I uh, have my cup of coffee and I have some breakfast and maybe you get a a hug from one of the the children, then suddenly you're feeling a little more optimistic. You're not feeling quite so so moody. And, And you see, we're constantly being affected by our surroundings. And this is really classically what the word affections means. It is the outworkings of our souls through our physical bodies, they are affections because they, re- they are the response of things coming at us. We love and hate. We show mercy or we execute justice. We desire something or we are repulsed by something. We express joy or sorrow or boldness or fear depending on what is coming against us. And so you see, the, these are called by uh, theologians affections. The affections of our souls as they work themselves out through our bodies. And this is the response of what's coming at us. We're constantly encountering things and then discerning if they are good or bad and then responding accordingly. That is our affections. And Sam Renaheim described it this way. He said, with our body and soul and the faculties seated in them, mind, will, and affections, we interpret the world around us as good or evil and we take action based on our perceptions. They are called affections because we are affected by something else. We take action based on some external object. And we see this even in in, in young children... Uh, one of the things I find fascinating about children is, is how they so fully express their affections. They, they really don't have a filter. We, we kind of learn to to you know, suppress them or to conceal them as we get older, but for young children they just they just express everything that is going on inside of their, their heart and mind. And so if a, a child uh, has a balloon, for example, they, they are so happy that they are shouting and, and, and yelling with joy about this balloon and they have to tell everybody around them about this balloon. But then at the same time, if that balloon pops, well, then it's immediate tears and sorrow and sadness and just the, the fullness of their affections due to these events changing uh, are expressed in young children. And oftentimes, it, uh, especially the, the joy that they can express over sometimes the most simple things can, can be rather contagious for us. We lose the wonder of of the moon at night or a bug crawling on a leaf and a child looks at this thing and they're just amazed and overwhelmed with with joy. And certainly Jesus pointed to this as a picture of the sort of faith we ought to have in God. We see, um, for example, today clashing affections with even perceiving things as good or bad. Today in the Middle East, we have this strange Uh, a, a situation unfolding across the world where some people are looking at what's happening in the Middle East, they see the Hamas as being terrorists, as having um, brutally attacked Israel. And, and so they feel angry towards the, the, the terrorist group and defensive of Israel, other people, um, you know, which is strange for us to perhaps understand. But they look at the events and they see Israel as overreacting. And so the way their affections respond is they are upset with Israel. And they have these massive protests, even in London today, to protesting the, the Palestine. And, and we see how our affections, Affections are the reactions to what we see happening around us. All right, and and I know this is rather technical, but it will um, hopefully help as we uh, bring this back around to how this applies to God Himself. So, affections are simply the outworkings of our soul through our bodies. As we encounter different things around us, we, we go through life and, and we don't even think about this. It just happens naturally for us. And some will make a further distinction from affections to passions. Now, uh, as I said, I know, sorry, I'm trying not to make this more complicated than it needs to be, but it will, I think, help in a moment. So bear with me. Um, some people would just say passions are the same as affections. And so they just use the two terms uh, synonymously. We, we have affections. They can also be called the passions. This is part of who we are as, as God's creation. But I think it's helpful, um, as others will make a distinction, that passions are the perversion of affection. So uh, I may feel anger about an injustice, but if that anger leads me to rage, that becomes what some would define as a passion. Or if, if um, you know, fear or sadness, which, which are normal affections God would give us, that could lead to despair or utter hopelessness. Then those would be described as passions. And sin is is so devastating for us as as humanity because it has corrupted every part of our being. We talk about total depravity, not saying that man is as bad as he can be, but that sin, when man fell, it affected every part of our being, our body and our soul and our mind and our will. It is all brought into subjection under sin. And this then distorts and affects the the passions and, and the affections that God has given us as his people. The confession says, In Adam we are wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Paul would talk in Romans 1 of foolish hearts being darkened when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Our hearts are darkened. Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about how prior to, prior to God's work within us, we, we, we lived as children of wrath in the passions of our flesh, controlled by these impulses, corrupted by sin. So humanity has these affections, how our soul is is working itself out through our bodies and our emotions, and we, we feel these things in a in a very real way. But when we talk of God, we have to be so careful on this point. God is the uncreated one. He is the eternal one. He is the the pure spirit who is without affections and passions in the same sense that we have them. He's not altered by the things that he experiences or he encounters. He is unchanging in all of his attributes. And, and, and this is why many would, would refer to God as having not um, affections, but perfections. God is perfect in all of his being. He is, he is pure. He is, he is infinite. And he isn't affected by something to then become loving or feel loving or to feel merciful. He himself is Pure love, pure mercy, pure justice, he is these things, and they flow out from him, whereas we um, these things are often the result of, of of things happening within us or circumstances that we perceive, and we, these affections rise up within us, but that is not so for God, and of course we, we come right to the edge here of our, our ability to, to Comprehend who God is. How can a, a, a speck of dust upon this earth comprehend the infinite? We, we really can't. But it is important that we understand a vital difference here. Uh, quoting Sam Renahan again, he said, God does not have attributes. God is his attributes. God is all that he is. He is not the sum of his total parts. He is the one simple being. And, and our minds struggle to comprehend what that means. But w- again, we, we cannot bring God and the knowledge of God and, and who God is down to our level of understanding of ourselves, of our own experiences and how we perceive the world and respond with emotions and love and anger and, 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 and fear. This is not true of God. And so... And I'll just give you these rather quickly. There are then four principles that help us with these passages in light of these truths. As we we look at a section like this, where on the one hand it seems that God regrets, and then yet we're told that God is not like man. He does not have regret. He does not lie. He does not change. Four principles that help us to understand these passages. And the first principle then is that passages that tell us about God being God's being or nature take priority over passages that describe God's actions. So that's a principle that we have to keep in mind. When we have a text that is describing to us God's nature, his being, his character, those texts take precedence over the ones that are describing his actions to us in space and time. And that's a, an important distinction so that's the first principle. Secondly, Scripture uses the physical features and emotional experiences of mankind in order to teach us about God. But we must not equate the human language used to describe God with God Himself. I mean, what in the world does all of that mean? Essentially, God has to reveal Himself to us in a way that we can understand and perceive it. And so, God does reveal Himself describing human emotions and experiences and and features even. The hand of God, the arm of God, the eyes of God. But God is not a physical being. He does not have a body like men. And even the children should remember that question. God is a spirit, right? He does not have a body like men. That is a profound and incredibly important truth. And so God uses language to help communicate himself to us and describe his actions. But we have to be careful that we don't take that language and then import it back onto the character of God. For example, I might say, you know, man, that hockey player was flying down the ice. Well, I'm not teaching that human nature can fly. According to our physical nature, we can fly in that statement. It's an expression, isn't it? And we understand that. That's not meant to tell me that human beings can fly. I'm saying that as an expression describing his action. And so if God says, I regret making Saul king, we don't conclude, well, that must mean God is changing his mind or he's capable of making wrong choices. You see, we can't use the imagery that's helping us understand his action to then say something about the character and nature of God. We have to keep that distinction. And so that's the second principle. And third principle, human language and understanding cannot contain who and what God is. Revelation may be accommodated to our capacities, but it is not false. And I'm borrowing these principles from uh, Sam's book. But um, obviously we understand that human language cannot... Adequately contain all of who God is. Now that's not to say when God describes himself to us in these ways that it's wrong, but we just understand that it's limited. It's, it's, it's a very basic knowledge. Then um, you know, the, even the, the term, the, the anthropomorphic, well, I can barely say that word, but um, the use of language, it's, it's how God will describe himself to us in human terms, in human imagery, so that we can understand something of who he is. What other way can he reveal himself to us? It must be in terms that we relate to and understand. And we all do this with our little children, don't we? Talking to a, a toddler. One of the, the cutest things with, with young children is the, the words that they say as they're trying to communicate uh, what they want or what they, they, they want to show you. And, and they come up with these adorable words. And I wish as a parent I had done a better job of writing down some of those phrases. I, I did create a little note on my phone. And I was trying to uh, write them down when they come across them. Because they're, they're so funny when you hear them. But a few years go by and you tend to forget. Um, and as parents, we understand that sometimes you must stoop down to the level of the child and communicate with them in terms that they understand. And then and as parents, you kind of get used to sounding rather ridiculous uh, in public many times as you talk to your little child because you, you're using words that they can grasp. This past summer, um, I guess it was for Silas, one of the first times he really remembers seeing a grasshopper. And, and, and he just was overwhelmed with this little bug that, that can leap so far in its legs and its big eyes and uh, he's just very amazed by, by grasshoppers. I know even just the thought of it, for some of you who are farming and, and have fields, it's a, a horrendous thought, and you wish I had not brought up the idea of grasshoppers, that uh, you, you despise these little um, vegetation-destroying machines. But for Silas, he couldn't say grasshopper. It, it kind of got all jumbled as it came out, so they were hoss scrappers. And I tried a number of times to to correct him, but then eventually what I found was I was also calling them hoss scrappers. And people were like, what in the world is this guy talking about? These are not, not hoss scrappers. But, uh, but then in communicating with him, we, we start sometimes use the language, right, that, that they are using and understand. And I used to be very stressed that, well, maybe he'll say this for the rest of his life if I don't correct him. But, you know, in actuality, I've never met a, a five or six year old that is still saying that. It's, I just tend to enjoy it now or a a mother who is talking with her little daughter about her her widow Blankie or her her dolly Wally, And and, and, and you understand that when the mother is doing that, she's not displaying some inability to speak. She's communicating with her child in a way that her child understands. And this is what God must do for us. He must stoop down in using the English language, using pictures and images that we understand to describe himself because he is infinite. And so we obviously, as a principle, can't limit God to our language, realizing that it is inadequate. And the last principle then is, we need to distinguish between our eternal God in himself and the outworkings of his decree in time and space. And uh, we've already talked about this one a a bit, that we have to look at texts and say, okay, is this describing the character and nature of God? Or is this describing his activity In space and time, because those two different things are important. When God tells Samuel, I regret making Saul king. Well, what does that word imply? What is the imagery there that God is using? Well, to regret is to, to, to change course, to, to go in a different direction, right? And, and so God is, is in this way communicating with Samuel that I'm about to, to make a change here. I'm going to alter the, the path that you thought you were on. And now we're going to go in this direction. And we'll see in the next chapter. That's exactly what unfolds. God leads Samuel to, to David, So the the point of connection that God is making is not to say that God uh, is changing or he is altered by this circumstance, but simply that he is changing his activity. He's about to do something different as it relates to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually found a statement from him on this very issue. He said, um, how can you at one time... uh, and at the same time say that God is immutable and unchangeable and still tell us that the Bible talks about God repenting. Because repentance means to change one's mind. And clearly the answer is this, he says, God's character never changes, but his dealings with people change. And that then is what we are meant to understand. We can hold fast to 1 Samuel 15, And also the glory of Israel, Samuel says, will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Samuel wants the reader to understand this clearly. By God saying, I regret making Saul king, don't take that to mean God is a God who is changing or is altered by the circumstances around him. His His decree is unfolding moment by moment exactly as he had planned. Of course he knew Saul was going to be a terrible first king. That was the point. He gave them the king they wanted. They deserved as a picture of the foolishness of man's strength and man's wisdom. And then God has already set the stage for the king after his own heart to come forward and really prepare the way for Christ to come. God is orchestrating all of these things. And so we have to be careful and humble as we wrestle with these tensions. And so as Christians, I believe we can we can most definitely rest assured that God is indeed unchanging. He is forever the same. He is he is the perfect pure being who is not altered by the things that unfold in space and time. He is infinitely eternal and holy. And we can trust that all he has promised to us will come to pass. Why? Because he is the unchanging God. If God is subject to change, then we cannot know certainly anything. The laws of logic, of mathematics, of the the, the laws of nature which God has put into place, the the word of God, the promises of God, the the work of Christ, and the hope of of, uh, glorification of all things. If God is able to change, then all of that Is lost. We stand upon the bedrock of the immutable God, and we are right to stand there. Charles Spurgeon said, We have an unchanging gospel, which is not today green as grass and tomorrow dry hay, but always the abiding truth of the immutable Jehovah. We can rejoice in this attribute of God and Give thanks that he has revealed his activity to us in ways and terms and imagery that we can understand and perceive. And even as we prepare to come and take the Lord's table to take the bread and the cup, it's a picture, a reminder that the Lord is faithful to his promise. He will bring about the fullness of his salvation in our lives because Christ came into the world as he promised, according to his eternal plan. Jesus came and offered up his life upon Calvary. He rose from the grave on the third day and we trust this is a full, sufficient atonement because God has declared it so and he will not change his mind. By his grace, we have been changed and will never live again under the tyranny of sin for God will not revoke his word towards us in Christ. He cannot lie. He is not a man but God over all and so let us rest in the perfections of God. Let us rest in our immutable, unchanging God who is at work even now in space and time. And so let us pray as we close there as we prepare to take the Lord's table together. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we come before you and Lord, we are mindful even of, of Job's response, Lord. The... The temptation to simply place one's hand over our mouth, Lord, and realize that, Lord, our, our view of you is, is so small and so inadequate so often. Lord, the, the human language fails to adequately describe and explain who you are. You, you cannot be contained in language. But we also give you thanks, Lord, that in your mercy and in your love, you have revealed yourself to us in ways that we can perceive and understand and so, God, I pray as we, as we see, uh, Lord, these, these revelations, as we see even language sometimes used that might appear to be contradictory, God, that we would not question your character that has been made crystal clear to us, that we would, Lord, stand firm upon you who are the unchanging one. And then in, in all of our changing and, and struggling and emotions, Lord, that, that we would just uh, even allow that 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 fickleness of, of heart, allow it to drive us to you and to see the, the wonder of Christ becoming a man, living his life in obedience to the law, dying and rising for our deliverance that we might be secure in him, seated even now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We, we praise you and we thank you. And we ask that you, by your spirit, continue to open our minds and understanding that we might worship you rightly in spirit and truth. And praise you, Lord, as you alone are God over all. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you would like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www www.redeeminggracechurch.ca We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, that the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.